This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. I'm Jackie. I bring years of experience in law, policy, and energy to provide an independent view. For solutions that bring America greater energy security. I want you to know from the outset, this show is neither a subsidiary of nor a paid advertisement for any energy corporation. All opinions expressed are my own. Join us on Twitter at Jackie Daily Show and on demand, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. So if there's an issue that I want you to know about, that maybe I've not given enough emphasis to. It is the issue of overcriminalization. Have you heard about this? This is this problem where every time you turn around, the federal government's passing a new law, the state government's passing a new law, this federal agency is passing a new criminal law, you know, local laws. I mean, it's so much. There is no way that any single human being can possibly stay on top of all the things that can land you in the clink these days. Not just fines. I mean in a cage. I mean jail time. It used to be that in the olden days, back in old England, they said ignorance of the law is no excuse. Back when they said that, you know, you could probably count on your fingers and toes the number of criminal laws. Maybe, or maybe there were 50, maybe. These were easily understood laws. If you know the Ten Commandments, you probably know them. These are, these are, Laws that were evil in and of themselves. Everyone knew what the law was. Well, today, in the federal code, you have greater than 4,000 criminal laws. In the code of federal regulations, you have between three and 400,000. Can you imagine that? Do you know what the laws are? There's no way. There's no way any single human could possibly stay on top of all of the laws being made and every interpretation of those laws in the courts that could then also sweep more broadly. Serious, serious problem. And this is a show about energy. A lot of the, the, the abuse that we see on this issue is coming out of the EPA and the, the agencies that regulate environmental issues. They'll have crimes that are sometimes strict liability. What that means is it doesn't matter if you had any mental intent whatsoever. These are administrative crimes. You are guilty, whether you ever knew you were doing anything wrong or not. And uh, I really think the EPA must be one of the biggest offenders. They create these laws with impunity. Joining us to discuss this problem and a, a potential solution to this problem is Paul Larkin. He is with the Heritage Foundation and of interest to us. He used to be at the EPA uh, as a special agent for criminal enforcement back in the day. But he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's not one of the bad guys. He served on the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, as counsel for Orrin Hatch. And he was at the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, assisting the Solicitor General in the Criminal Division, specifically organized crime and racketeering. And he's argued 27 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Paul Larkin knows what he's talking about. Paul, welcome to the Jackie Daly Show. 
Thank you, Jackie, for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, explain to everyone, like, you know, am, am I overstating this case, or is overcriminalization a huge problem we need to all care about? Am I getting paranoid here, or is this really a serious threat to everyone? It is a serious threat. One of the problems is people don't realize how big a threat it is. As you mentioned in your introduction, originally everyone knew what was a crime because everything that was in the Decalogue paralleled what was in the criminal code. A crime against God was a crime against the king. That's not true today. There are thousands of crimes that no one knows about. Well, and you, I'm reading through some of your work uh, for the ABA, for Hofstra, for Harvard's uh, journal, and, you know, you give a parade of horribles, just some real-life examples of people who have gotten in, in trouble with the criminal law for the most ridiculous reasons. I'm going to cite to a few of them here. Abner Schoenwetter spent six years in a federal prison for importing Honduran lobsters that were a smidgen too small and were packed in plastic, not paper. That's a 2003 case after that. For following the procedure he was instructed to use to clean up toilet overflows at a military retirement home. Overflows caused by adult diapers flushed down the toilet by the disabled elderly residents. This man mistakenly, uh, you know, shunted these into the Potomac River rather than a sewage treatment plant. And for this, Lawrence Lewis was forced to choose between standing trial to protest his innocence and risk abandoning his elderly mother to her own devices or pleading guilty. That's in 2011. Then came Nancy Black, poor Nancy Black. She's an expert on whales, and she videotaped whales while they were eating. She apparently brought the matter to the government's attention uh, that she was doing this and inquiring as to the legalities involved. And for this, she gets hit with a criminal law. This poor woman could have been tried for a felony for videotaping whales, and she went to the government herself, and they tried to come after her with the criminal law. So, Paul, these are real-life cases, and I suspect these are three of thousands, or <laughs> tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, that you could share with us. So what is the solution to this? It's a government out of control. I mean, you know, are we to understand, Paul, that there's actually a law out there that someone wrote, you know, that says if you don't ship your, you know, lobsters of a certain uh, length, you're going to jail. If you videotape whales eating, you're going to jail. Are those real laws? <laughs> Obviously, this is federal court. Jackie, it's even worse than you suppose. Abner Schoenwetter was convicted under a federal law that makes it a crime to violate a foreign nation's law. Think about that for a minute. The foreign nation's law may not even be written in English, and yet you can be convicted under our laws for violating a law written by a foreign country in a foreign language. There could be no more absurd example of how far the law has gone and how ridiculous we've gotten. There is a solution for it, which I'm glad to, to talk to you about, but I want to emphasize that, unfortunately, we have let the criminal law become the governing instrument far too often in this nation. Well, and let me stop for a second. You know, I wonder to myself, this guy who's importing Honduran lobsters that were the wrong size, why is it not the job of Honduras to prosecute him? 
if, if it's their law and they're so concerned about that? Why, why should it be our, why are the taxpayers here paying to prosecute him? Well, let me tell you, the problem occurs because you have law enforcement authority in a large number of federal agencies, and they feel they have to make cases in order to justify their existence. Mm -hmm. So they will take every Tom, Dick, and Harry case they can get their mitts on just to get a stat. That's all that's going on here. They're not trying to protect the public. They're just trying to get cheap stats so that when they go up to Congress during the budgeting process, they can defend the money that Congress gave them. Right. It is a joke. Right. Well, and the poor guy who is, you know, following procedure at the military retirement home, cleaning up overflown toilets, he's he's prosecuted under the Clean Water Act. So the you, district you know, I, court judge, the district court judge in that case, when he came in to enter a plea, said he had not even heard of the statute. <laughs> okay. Right. So that when the judge, who we might style an expert, you know. Uh, in the law, says he's never heard of this. Why should we expect the poor guy being paid to clean up toilets at the military retirement home uh, to be aware of this? Yet he is prosecuted. So, all right, um, you have uh, a solution that you have written about to take care of this problem. I recall when I was in Congress uh, as a staffer, the Overcrim Project had several, uh, basically three basic uh, pillars they moved under for how to solve it, including just returning certain laws to the be the express province of the state, not the federal government. Sometimes it was in inserting a mental intent requirement so that a person had to actually willfully or intentionally do something wrong. Um, you're advancing the mistake of law doctrine, which is something that we all learn in law school. Everyone, for those of you who didn't go to law school, uh, there's mistake of fact and there's mistake of law. These are two different concepts in the criminal law. Paul, can you explain what mistake of law is and what it would do to help these poor people who are being prosecuted by the government? Sure. Let me distinguish mistake of law from mistake of fact. If you go to a restaurant and pick up somebody else's jacket by mistake, you're not guilty of theft because you did not intend to steal that person's jacket. You thought it was yours. Mistake of law is a little different. Mistake, the mistake of law defense is designed to allow someone to be exculpated if no reasonable person would have known that what was charged against him is a crime. In other words, if no reasonable person could have thought that he or she was breaking the law, it should be impossible for the government to, to demand more than that in order to convict somebody of a crime. So this defense would allow someone to say, I didn't know this was illegal, and no reasonable person would have known it's illegal. Therefore, I should go free. That defense will strike at the heart of the overcriminalization problem. I agree. Now, tell me how a person would go about proving what a reasonable person would or would not know is legal or not. Okay. I mean, do, you, do you do a poll? Do you, do you quiz the jury? I mean, how do we do this? Okay. Most importantly... The defendant will take the stand and explain what he knew and didn't know. This is going to come up mostly in regulatory cases because the number of statutes and number of regulations are too numerous for anyone to know. Everyone knows that murder is illegal. 
everyone knows that possessing heroin is illegal. Everyone knows that kidnapping, that rape, that robbery, that theft, everyone knows those things are illegal. What they don't know is what some regulation may require of them in a certain circumstance. Take hazardous waste. You, everyone knows you can't dump hazardous waste into a lake or river. But the problem is it's difficult to know what is and is not a hazardous waste. In order for it to be a hazardous waste, it has to be a waste. And some materials are deemed recyclable materials and therefore not a waste. And it can be terribly difficult for someone to know all the requirements to make out a recyclable material rather than a waste material. These uh, laws and these regulations may be fine for civil purposes, but not criminal. We should not be prosecuting people where no reasonable individual would have known the conduct was illegal. Okay, Paul, hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back and continue the conversation with Paul Larkin of the Heritage Foundation, used to do criminal law enforcement uh, at the EPA, used to work at the U.S. Department of Justice. He understands criminal law, telling us about overcriminalization and what can be done. We'll be right back. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and we're talking to Paul Larkin. Paul is with the Heritage Foundation. He used to be with the EPA in their criminal section. He also worked at the Department of Justice and uh, also Judiciary Committee specializing in crime. So Paul knows his crime, and we're talking about overcriminalization. Basically, this trend that the, that the American governments at the federal and state level have taken on where they criminalize anything and everything, often in the name of being tough on crime— and the result is that we've proliferated so many crimes. Unless you're reading the Federal Register every day and keeping up on all of the changes and amendments and interpretations, there's no way you can possibly be aware of all the crimes that could throw you in the clink at any given time. There's a book out called Three Felonies a Day that I recommend to you on this subject, explaining just how easy it is to run afoul of the law. And when this happens, people lose respect for the law after some time, and there's a reduced willingness to comply with the law. So, Paul, let me pick this up because one of the first things you say in your article uh, that I'm reading that you wrote for the ABA is that social science suggests people generally follow the law if they respect it, not because they fear it. And I had to think about that for a while. I thought that was a really interesting concept because, you know, Justice Holmes, Oliver Wendell, I uh, used to say, you know, the bad man doesn't give two straws about what's right or what's wrong. He's just trying to avoid punishment. So he will comply with the law for that reason. But in fact, you're saying the social science shows otherwise uh, because where people don't uh, think the law is legitimate, then they see low rates of, uh, you know, compliance with the law. So I find that I find that really interesting. Um, 
Overcriminalization. Why, you know, are we seeing evidence now that people are less likely to comply with laws because they become so unreasonable and ubiquitous? It's always difficult to prove a negative, Jackie. And one of the problems we, we have in law enforcement and have had, I guess, throughout our history is we don't know how many crimes occur that we don't know about, either right. because people don't report them or because nobody just knows about them. It's a particular problem in the environmental area. Think about this. If somebody commits a robbery, you know money is taken from you. If somebody punches you in the nose, you know that's an assault. But in the case of an environmental crime, if somebody is sneaky about it, they'll dump something in a river or dump something in the land, and no one will know about it, perhaps ever, but certainly not for years. So people don't always know that a crime has been committed. But if what you're doing is asking them to believe that anyone could know all of these laws, they're going to laugh at you, and they're not going to have respect for what you're trying to do, and they're not going to be willing to help. They're not going to be willing to go the extra mile. They're not going to be willing to try to learn what the laws are. They're, in fact, going to think that they're being picked on in some way because they're being asked to know laws that no reasonable person would know. And if you ask somebody to do something that no reasonable person would do, you better have a pretty damn good reason why. Right. And just to, just to say that you have to do this because you're engaged in a legitimate business activity is not a good enough reason. So to take, you know, to, to just take a recent example to demonstrate, I guess, the breadth of what the average citizen is up against. Um, you cite in your article the activities of the 109th Congress. So we're talking about 2005, 2006. I will point out the Republicans were still uh, both uh, dominating the House and the Senate at that time. You point out this is just one Congress, just, you know, 05 to 06. There were 446 new proposed criminal offenses. And folks, this is just your Congress. This is not the administrative agencies, the federal agencies like the EPA. These were 446 criminal offenses not involving violence or firearms, drug trafficking, pornography, immigration, things that, you know, would be more obvious. 57% of those laws failed to limit liability to parties with an evil intent, and 23 of those became law. Um, and as, you, you know, as we said earlier, crimes are composed of two elements, at least. The act plus the intent equals the crime. So that's what we mean by no intent. Uh, you do not intend to... to uh, commit the crime. So, Paul, you mentioned mistake of law as, as a defense, and we reviewed that in the last segment. Um, what do you think are the chances that we can make progress at actually enshrining mistake of law as a viable defense? Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any uh, great likelihood we're going to see criminal law reform this Congress. The reason is people on the left want sentencing reform but not substantive criminal law reform. People on the right are saying, we're glad to have sentencing reform, but we also believe the substantive criminal law has to be reformed. Unfortunately, the environmental groups, for example, are so adamantly opposed to any revision of the substantive law and would fight to the death against a mistake of law defense that we're not going to see any reform to the law along those lines, certainly in the remainder of this Congress. It's sad. It should be reformed. The defense should be adopted, not and but it's not going to. 
It's not going to because it's bad, not because it's bad policy, but because it's just politics. That's all that's going on here is politics. Right. Well, and it seems like, um, you know, the the environmental groups are incredibly zealous um, about using criminal law. You know, what are the alternatives? I mean, criminal law and throwing people in a cage should be the last resort. What can we do? You know, actually, you know what? I'm going to hold you over for an additional segment. You be thinking about the the options, uh, you know, what we should be doing instead of throwing people in jail for this, that, and the other thing they've never even heard of. We're talking with Paul Larkin. He's with the Heritage Foundation, used to be with the criminal uh, section of the EPA and also at the Department of Justice uh, Criminal Division. So, Paul, you be thinking about that. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. by Paul Larkin, third segment, in case you missed the first two. He's with the Heritage Foundation, used to be with the Criminal Enforcement Division of EPA. After that, he was at the Department of Justice, also uh, in the criminal section. And we're talking about the problem of overcriminalization. So many laws, you can't possibly be apprised of what they are, especially in the environmental area. And so people are finding themselves going to jail for the most innocent of acts. I mean, I heard of a case while I was working for the Congress about a poor guy who shipped tulips to South America. He didn't put the right labeling on the box. Guess what? Federal agents at his house, he's face down on the pavement, cuffed, and he went away for two years to jail. This is so serious. You've got overzealous bureaucrats all over the federal agencies writing the criminal laws as fast as they can, and nobody is standing in their way. Congress is not doing the oversight that they should do. And so you and I, the taxpayer, are paying to prosecute and persecute these poor people, some of them just trying to make a living. Then we're paying for their defense lawyer. Then we're paying to incarcerate them. And I think it's an outrage. It's, it's wrong. It's a violation of their rights. It's an insult to our common law tradition of fairness. And we have to find a way to make this stop. When I was in Washington, the ACLU and Heritage Foundation had joined up together. You rarely see that to try to solve this problem. So we're talking with Paul Larkin. Paul, what are the alternatives to writing a daggone criminal law every single time a bureaucrat detects a problem somewhere? What can they do? You know, making something a crime or making a sentence more severe is not the only way to deal with crime. What you often need to do, and I think what you most often need to do, is to have more people investigating the crimes or more assets that they can use in investigation. Think about it. The Criminal Investigation Division at the EPA was only about 200 people. Some of those 200 people are going to be supervisors. They're not out in the field. Some of those people are going to be on vacation leave. Some of those people are going to be involved in training. So let's say you have 150 federal agents out in the field at any one time. There are 50 states out there. That averages out to three agents per state. That's just absurd to think that they'll be able to investigate the crimes that are being committed. And there are environmental crimes being committed. 
I sent a physician to prison for hiring a dope dealer to go to a homeless shelter and persuade the homeless to do an asbestos rip and strip without giving them any training, without giving them any protective gear, and without telling them that what they were stripping was asbestos. Essentially, these people are a manslaughter in progress. They're all going to die because of lung disease of one form or another. So there are environmental crimes. There are people who need to be prosecuted. There are people that need to go to prison. But what we don't need to do is pick on people who don't know that what they're doing is a crime. What we need to do, bottom line, Jackie, is take criminal investigation away from the EPA and give it to the FBI. Now, neither the right nor the left wants it in the hands of the FBI. But if you believe in environmental criminal enforcement, and I do, it should be given to the FBI and the EPA should be just left alone to do whatever regulatory work that it's assigned. Okay. Now, I'll tell you the other solutions that I have heard back when I was working um, on the Hill. You know, part of it was, let's just repeal literally two-thirds of uh, at least the federal criminal code, that part that Congress had any control over and was able to repeal. And then there was a solution of, um, you know, any law that's duplicative, any law that really could be covered by the states and not the feds, we should repeal um, and, and then there was the idea of kind of having one single statute that would force a mens rea requirement into every criminal law. For those of you who are not lawyers, when we say mens rea, we're talking about that other piece, the second half of the crime, which is the intent, the intent to commit a crime. So for example, um, and Paul, you stop me if I get this wrong, I'm not a criminal lawyer. So, uh, there's, there's taking life. If I'm driving down a residential neighborhood and I'm seven miles over the speed limit and I hit a poor little girl who runs out in front of me, I was driving negligently. I think that qualifies as manslaughter if she dies. My intent was not to kill her. My intent was only to drive negligently. I was negligent. If, on the other hand, I waited behind the bushes and, and hunted her down, uh, you know, with a weapon and killed her, and my intent was to kill her, now I'm a murderer. I've committed murder. So in both cases, I'm taking life. The difference is the mental intent. Act plus intent equals crime. So, Paul, this business of passing a statute which would force at least a bare minimum uh, mental intent requirement into every law, is that um, viable? Is that something we should push for that you think the Congress would actually do? People have been pushing that for years. It's called the default mens rea standard. Mens rea is the Latin term that lawyers use to describe mental state. At common law, you could not be convicted of a crime unless you did an evil act with an evil state of mind. Like I said earlier, accidentally taking someone else's coat is not theft if you right. thought it was your own. Intending to take someone else's coat is theft, so the state of mind is critical. Unfortunately, the problem that I mentioned earlier with respect to the mistake of law defense has also, unfortunately, torpedoed the default mens rea standard that's been working its way through Congress. Now, it's possible in the remaining period that Congress will engage in some sort of criminal justice reform. But 
the left has been completely unwilling to engage in any discussion of substantive criminal justice reform, and as the result, I don't think we're going to see it. We should. It's important. It is critical to separate people who are blameless from those who are blameworthy. But unfortunately, the public hasn't suffered enough yet in order to realize the risk that they have. Only when there is a critical mass of people who've actually been arrested for crimes that they didn't know and that no reasonable person would have known were on the books, only then will they demand that Congress do something about this. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, to be perfectly fair, I, I'm always saying that my show is nonpartisan. People know I have a free market stance about just about everything, but I, I, will, I will fairly criticize my own party when it's warranted. And I will say that I can recall, um, you know, criminal law having been in the committee that I was um, closest to in staffing, uh, the chairman of the subcommittee on the Constitution. I saw that the Republican staff uh, who handled that particular issue were absolutely, completely inflexible. They couldn't give prosecutors more power and more tools fast enough. And any pushback against that, they would hear none of it. Um, and and I believe that all the all of them, at least when I was there, were prosecutors. I don't think we had a single defense lawyer on the Republican side. The Democrats did. But this is such a polarizing you know, issue. Know, Go ahead. You know, Jackie, the Republicans and Democrats are both at fault for this. This is yeah. not a partisan issue. This is a bipartisan right. problem. Both parties are at fault. But I think what unfortunately has happened is this. There are too many people, probably more Republicans than Democrats, but probably some on the Democrat side too, who believe we should trust the good judgment of prosecutors to charge only those who are truly bad people. That prosecutors should be left free to make the decision as to who is bad and who is not. The problem with that is that's not our legal system. No. Our legal system, as John Marshall said more than a you know more than two hundred years ago, is a government of laws, not men. It is immoral to have to rely on the judgment of an individual rather than the clarity of the law to know how to walk the straight and narrow. To it keep yourself out of jail. Should, yeah, exactly. It's, it's the law that people should be able to rely on, not the the good graces of the prosecutor. Well, and I heard that time and time again, Paul, on Capitol Hill, and I said over and over, and this may be very unpopular on the Republican side, you know, I said, what you're saying is that we should trust the government. We should just trust the government. And as you know, the government's made up of thousands of prosecutors. So it's the luck of the draw. It's a crapshoot. You might get a reasonable prosecutor. You might not. You might get a liberal one. You might get a conservative one. Who knows? And so this is what they're arguing for. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up because you yourself was on the prosecutorial side, particularly in EPA, uh, where you're talking about environmental crimes. Now, it's been a while since you were over there, so I know you're not able to, to comment on today's EPA. Um, but did you find that uh, there was broad variation in the way that prosecutors approached their job I would assume it would come. It would, it would be as unique as a thumbprint the way they would approach their job. Let me give you, for instance, I had a case where I could have uh, arrested someone for the unlawful storage of hazardous waste, but what I found out was this: the person who 
could have been charged uh, had a spouse that died about six months beforehand. It was the spouse that ran the business. The person who could have been charged never had anything to do with the business until the spouse died and then went down to the business one time, which was in a terrible part of town, and got mugged and never went back again. Mm. That's not someone who the criminal law needs to go after. And I right. decided not to pursue it criminally. I let it, the civil people handle it. But there were people in my own office that would have gone after that person criminally simply because they needed the stat. Right. And here, let me let me make a point that we haven't discussed yet, but I think it is the single most important thing that the next attorney general, be it a Republican, a Democrat, whatever, has to do. The next attorney general has to direct people in the Justice Department to figure out a way of measuring success other than using the body count method that we did back in Vietnam. Right. I'm old enough to right. remember that didn't work back then. Right. And it's not working now. Right now, what happens is Congress appropriates money to law enforcement agencies. Those are the inputs. The outputs are the number of arrests, number of charges, number of convictions, length of sentences, amount of fines. What we need to focus on are not the outputs, but are on the outcomes. We need to be able to focus on how much we have reduced crime in different areas, not just the number of charges that have been brought and the like. Because what we're doing is encouraging people to bring penny-ante cases that wind up creating terrible injustices and terrible tragedies for people who are morally blameless. We should not be using the criminal law to go after those people. That's what the civil law is for. We we're need talking... an attorney general who will stand up and say no more. So, Paul, what you're talking about, and everyone we're talking with, Paul Larkin, Heritage Foundation – used to be in the criminal section over at EPA. Paul, what you're talking about is changing the entire incentive system for prosecutors, which I think would be fantastic, because that is the heart of the problem, what you're calling get the stat. And uh, really, if I, if I could encourage you, or, or something I'd like to see, is basically some scholarship documenting and, and measuring this problem. And exact because I, I used to hear the oversight hearings in Congress. I know what they say to us to try to impress us, and it's always numbers. Uh, something to demonstrate how they're incentivized and how we can change that and, and how we can measure, uh, as you say, that you know, what's the impact on the crime that's out there? Their whole job is to protect us. And the answer sure is not to trust the government. That's not a very American answer to the problem of prosecutorial uh you know, overzealousness uh, and, and bad laws they can use to, you know, within the law come after us. So, Paul, we are out of time right now. Um, and so I, I, I hate to end this conversation because I find this riveting. I could talk to you all night about overcriminalization, but it's a topic I'm going to keep pounding away at because really, you know, this show is about energy. The EPA is one of the worst culprits when it comes to overcriminalization, uh, drafting laws that, that basically no reasonable person could be expected to know are wrongful, uh, under at least in the eyes of the law. And so I want to make sure I have you back on so you can keep us updated on what you're doing and so we can keep pushing out the word on this issue. Paul, thank you so much for being generous with your time. Really enjoyed it. It's my pleasure, Jackie. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Join us online at Twitter at Jackie Daly Show and on demand 
on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. We'll be back. to the Jackie Daly Show, and we just completed a discussion with Paul Larkin of the Heritage Foundation on the EPA and overcriminalization. If you missed that segment, I encourage you to catch it. You can always get the old podcasts online. You can get those on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. All right, coming up this second hour, we're going to be talking with Rob Henneke. He's with the Center for the American Future, and he's representing truckers and farmers against the EPA for their new move to permit the state of California to overregulate anybody going in and out of there in a car or a truck. See, it's just another way that they can get around the law, right? They give one state a waiver, and voila, we're all overcooked again in more, even more law than before. Also going to talk about the brand new proposal for a carbon tax onto every child. Are you welcoming a new baby? Well, people at Johns Hopkins think that you need to pay a tax for that. All right, coming up next hour on Jackie Daly. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. I'm Jackie. I bring years of experience in law, policy, and energy to provide an independent view for solutions that bring America greater energy security. I want you to know from the outset, this show is neither a subsidiary of nor a paid advertisement for any energy corporation. All opinions expressed are my own. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Join us on Twitter at Jackie Daly Show and on demand on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. And don't forget to subscribe so you get the updates for all the new shows that come on each week. You know, we have a friend over the Tech Public Policy Foundation named Rob Henneke. Rob Henneke tends to be on top of all the best cases that are against the EPA, and there are so, so many of them around the country. I feel like I report on each and every one of them because I want you to know of the bad behavior that they're being called out on. And for for each piece of that, there's a whole lot more that they're not being called out on. Uh, but the, the latest case that Rob has brought to my attention that I wanted to bring to yours um, is a case of Dalton Trucking versus EPA. This is in the Ninth Circuit, the Blessed Ninth Circuit, the circuit that most often goes the opposite of the way that I would hope a federal appeals court would go. Um, And so Rob is going to join us and tell us, because, you know, every case is a story. Every case is a story. There's a plaintiff or plaintiffs in this case, many different groups, um, you know, truckers, farmers, other people uh, who've come together. And, And the plaintiff suffers a harm. And so the plaintiff is showing up to plead their grievances you know, to, to come to the government for a redress of their grievances uh, before the court. And so there's, there's a villain. 
And if, if it is, as the plaintiff says, then the defendant is the villain. So court cases are actually interesting. There's stories. You know, there's, there are people, there are human beings involved. So, Rob, tell us about the case of Dalton Trucking v. EPA. What is the EPA doing to poor Dalton Trucking? Well, I'd be thrilled to. And in this situation, our, our Texas Public Policy Foundation's litigation center, uh, the Center for the American Future, we represent a coalition of small businesses and trade associations in California uh, that are collectively suing the EPA for the EPA exceeding its authority under the Clean Air Act. You know, as the law is written, Jackie, as you and I know, as your listeners know, the Environmental Protection Agency is not the policy maker, much as they think they are, much as they would like to be. Under law, they are supposed to be the policy implementer given the authority from Congress and only that authority. And yet time and time again, we see the EPA attempting to drive policy, to drive the liberal environmental agenda by going outside of their bounds. And that's exactly what they've done here. You know, when you talk about liberal policymaking, the EPA and the state of California go hand in hand together. And what we have in this situation was uh, going back to the original adoption of the Clean Air Act in 1967, uh, Congress at the time determined that because of California's unique geography and topography, that it would give California the option to apply for a waiver from the Clean Air Act air emission requirements for uh, cars and trucks and other kinds of, of mechanized vehicles, but only if California could show compelling and extraordinary circumstances. So let me now, stop you for happened? a second on the on this argument about unique geographic location. Um, why does what it, what is California's argument that it deserves different treatment from all the other states because of its geography? I think in a modern-day context, this would never have been granted. But, you know, if you look at the, the valleys, the, you know, the, the different uh, coastal areas and mountainous areas, the argument was made that the California coastline captures air pollutants uh, differently than, say, Kansas. And so that was the reason at the time that in extraordinary circumstances, California was given the chance to apply for a different stand set of, of Clean Air Act regulations, but not in all situations and not just because they want to. And, and that's where that's led us to this case. You know, the EPA in California now holding hands you know, walking towards liberal environmental policymaking has just become a rubber stamp of giving California everything that it wants and adopting uh, stringent air standards that go way beyond uh, what are needed and way beyond what can be justified as uh, compelling and extraordinary. And as a result, you see California uh, squeezing out the, the type of businesses that we represent by implementing these uh, regulatory standards far in ex excess of what is actually needed. And the cost of that is hurting our clients 
And so our clients have stood up and said, the EPA, you are violating the Clean Air Act by just giving California a blank check or a blank slate to do whatever they want under y'all's rubber stamp. And so, that's what Rob, we're trying to fight. So let me be clear. Specifically, what they're doing under the Clean Air Act is regulating the emissions from mobile sources. And by mobile sources, they mean things like cars and trucks. So for your clients, uh, for Dalton Trucking and the other people, who I'm sure also use cars and trucks in California for their business, um, what does this look like? What are they making Dalton Truck Trucking do to their trucks or with their business? You know, where, where it you know, literally where the rubber meets the road, is requiring additional components onto these vehicles to meet higher emission standards. And every single one of those components are expensive, and that cost multiplies. And when you think about that, you know, this, this impacts vehicles in over 8,000 types of fleets in various types of industries everything from construction vehicles, manufacturing, you know, landscaping, ski resorts even, uh, forklifts, um, you know, all of these individual vehicles that are gas-powered motors, uh, when they have to add the cost of complying with these regulations, uh, one, it chokes out small business, and two, it increases the cost of all of the goods and services that are provided using those types of vehicles, uh, which increases the cost for everyone. So we're talking with Rob Henneke. He's with the Texas Public Policy Foundation in their Center for the American Future, and he represents a coalition of plaintiffs who are suing the EPA <clears throat> for, for exceeding their authority given to them uh, by Congress under the Clean Air Act. And so, Rob, what's interesting about this case is that there, the EPA is permitting California to do what it wants. Under normal circumstances, you and I would be pleased to see power uh, returned or back to the states which gave the federal government the power in the first place uh, because it's more accountable being closer to the people. Uh, but in this case, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, the whole reason, if I understand the case, the reason Congress gave this authority to uh, the federal government is because mobile sources like cars and trucks don't just stay inside at one state. They move interstate all the time on interstate highways. So um, it would be a patchwork of 50 different state laws for businesses to comply with if they were moving their, their cars and trucks from here to there. And that becomes very uh, burdensome and onerous for a business to comply with. So do I understand that correctly, that the Congress wanted the federal government to set a standard uh, so that we wouldn't be overburdened and now the issue is EPA is allowing one odd man out to go high above the standard. Uh, am, am, I, am I painting the picture correctly there? It is, and it's, and it's a way that the EPA is using to get around the policymaking of Congress. Because the, the way this mechanism is working is the EPA and California are working in tandem to ratchet up uh, environmental emission standards without congressional approval. And here's how they're doing it, Jackie, is because, you know, you're right. We are a nation of 50 states. And, you know, these companies that operate in California operate in many other states. And it makes no business sense to have to have 
one set of fleets for one state and another set of fleets for the other. And so the impact of this to Texans and to people all, all across the nation is the by the EPA allowing California to adopt higher regulatory standards than are allowed by federal law, then the businesses in California are forced to comply with that. And when they're forced to comply with that, then they have to upgrade you know, all their vehicles uh, that may end up operating in California. And so in a way, it forces those standards on businesses and, and uh, vehicles across the nation and it does so without the stroke of pen of Congress or, you know, respect for the legislative branch and the policymaking that's supposed to be vested there. We're talking with Rob Henneke, and he is leading up the Center for the American Future at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. We're talking about Dalton Trucking versus EPA. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation and get an update on where this case is going. You're listening to Jackie Daly. Join us online on Twitter at Jackie Daly Show. We'll be right back. listening to the Jackie Daly Show. Join us online on Twitter at Jackie Daly Show and on demand on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. We've been talking with Rob Henneke, and he is with the Texas Public Policy Foundation's Center for the American Future, and they are representing a coalition of plaintiffs, truckers, farmers, etc., against the EPA because the EPA is exceeding its authority, can you believe it, under the Clean Air Act, by permitting probably the most environmentally stringent state in the union, perhaps, California, to have a waiver from the federal law, whereby they can set their own standards higher than the federal law. And because there's so much commerce in and out of California, everyone everywhere else is going to have to comply if they want to do business there. Essentially, the EPA is going around Congress. And that is what Rob explained to us in the last segment. And his group is actually litigating this case in the Ninth Circuit. So, Rob, what do you think is going to happen with this case? You're in front of the Ninth Circuit. This is not a circuit that I would expect to be sympathetic to your arguments because it would mean that, in fact, California's higher, more stringent standards could not be enforced on cars and trucks um, in and out of their state. So what are you expecting? I mean, are you actually before the appeals court at this point, or are you in the district court? No, this case is d direct filed in the uh, Ninth Circuit Appellate Court. Uh, okay. That's how this type of Clean Air Act case are filed. And, you know, we're suing because the EPA, whether they like it or not, they have a duty to reject these kind of job-killing emission standards that are being proffered by uh, the California uh, um, Air Resources Board. You know, I feel like a broken record sometimes, Jackie. You know, <laughs> these cases come back to the concept of respecting the rule of law and enforcing the rule of law under our system of limited government, separation of powers, and checks and balances. And, you know, we keep fighting against these, these federal bureaucrats and policymakers that think that they have unlimited powers. 
and not just unlimited powers, but unlimited powers to to crush business and to drive up costs for individual Americans. So it's not, you know, yeah, the Ninth Circuit doesn't have the reputation of being the the most friendly forum, but at the end of the day, the meaning there has to be meaning in the laws enacted by Congress, and you know our clients deserve their day in court. We have a strong legal argument, and if we have to take it up higher than the Ninth Circuit, we'll do so. Uh, but uh, you know when Congress passed the Clean Air Act then and and now they didn't didn't just intend to hand over uh, to the EPA complete and total control over anything the EPA wants to do. No question. And, of course, the issue, as always, is that uh, groups like yours are up against the endless resources of the state. You know, so you guys you guys rely on people, you know, who care about your mission uh, to contribute to your group. Um, you know, and a lot of times I, I would assume those are private individuals and they can be foundations. But, you know, the EPA will never run out of lawyers We'll never have problems paying billable hours. We'll never run out of people who will supply studies for them inside their agency to back what they're saying and doing. So uh, you're kind of a, it's almost like guerrilla warfare. And it's almost like playing whack-a-mole because just as when you, you know, you find that you've, we've beaten them here or there and won this case or won that case, they can come up with something new. Um, but that's why uh, really hats off to you. And we all owe you a debt because when you achieve this victory, this is going to be a victory, and I, and I think that you will if you go to the Supreme Court, I, I would hope. Um, that would be a victory for all of us because it seems to me it's not really about Dalton trucking, and it's not even about the state of California or Californians. What you, if I had to zone in on the issue that you're fighting, you're fighting to restrain the EPA from sidestepping Congress and, you know, I guess ordaining itself its very own lawmaking body. Because that is what is happening here, and that is the precedent that is is being set by the EPA. Um, so I don't mean to be naive about these things. I'm not, you know, I've only been watching the EPA for a few years. But um, if you win this case, Rob, what are the implications for other things the EPA is doing? What if if you get this victory, where else can it hit the EPA? This this victory it has national implications because a victory would draw a line in limiting EPA's power to rewrite the federal laws that it has to operate underneath, and not just rewrite but misconstrue terms in order to advance <clears throat> liberal environmental policymaking. So we're focused on one specific issue in California, but the basic premise of this case is applicable to others is words have meaning, laws have significance as they were passed by Congress and the policymakers, and the executive branch is bound to follow that, not pick and choose what it wants to do or do something different if it disagrees. And that's the battle we're fighting over and over again here at the Center for the American Future. If you're talking about this fight or our fight against the Clean Power Plan, or our battle against the Endangered Species Act here in Texas, or against the uh, Army Corps of Engineers up in Illinois. Over and over and over, it's telling the federal government to stay within the rule of law and respect the Constitution. And that's what we're fighting for every day. 
So, Rob, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I'm just interested. Can you give us an update on what's going on with your fight with the Endangered Species Act? Absolutely. We have cleared all of the uh, procedural traps and uh, technical objections that the, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service has thrown at us. And we now have a scheduling order where we're, we, we know now we'll be litigating this case on the merits. Uh, we'll be filing a summary judgment motions beginning in November. And then actually the district judge has already set this case for oral arguments at the end of March. So we've got a schedule. Uh, we're working towards that and, uh, you know, crystallizing how to present this case before the district judge of challenging the ability of the Endangered Species Act to regulate everything under the sun. Again, <laughs> limited powers, Congress, interstate commerce only, not just anything that lives or breathes. Now, which which particular critter is that issue in this case, or is is there a, a critter? Or is this just a principle? <laughs> no, it's a critter. We we are suing. There's this cave spider that only oh, yes. exists in one county in that's Texas. right yeah it's not bought or sold it has no value it just exists in williamson county and we are saying that regulation of that spider under the federal endangered species act law is outside the authority of congress and outside the enumerated powers of the constitution if the states right. want to regulate it great or private properties owners want to conserve their own resources that's fine but it's not federal authority and we're fighting that in court Good luck to you, Rob. Thanks so much for joining us. And I want to have you back on to talk about that spider again. I, I'm all, I actually, I, you're now ringing the bell for me. So let's do that in a few weeks. <laughs> Look forward right. to it, Jackie. All right. Very good. You're listening to the Jackie Daly Show. We'll be right back. listening to the Jackie Daly show. You have heard more than one guest on my show suggest that there is a very ugly strain of the fringe radical green militant environmentalists, the more extreme part of the movement, who believe that humankind is the enemy of the environment and that we must choose that we cannot peacefully coexist, which is exactly what nature has done with us for as long as anyone is able to remember or write things down. All right, here's the problem with that. When they take it seriously, when you really, really push that idea that Earth comes first and humans come second, and humans must be dealt with at the, you know, uh, or, or Earth must be prized at the expense of humankind, you're going to end up with really ugly results. Anything that dehumanizes or cheapens human beings or innocent human life is bound to get scary after a while, particularly if the proponents are a little bit too powerful. And I will point out to you, there was a strong environmental strain uh, among the Third Reich, right? The, the last biggest, most scary and ugly totalitarian regimes that we've seen in the Western world had this strain. And of course, because there were limited resources, some people had to be eliminated. And guess what? It was never the people making the argument. They were never standing up and volunteering to eliminate themselves, although there were some rather radical eugenicists who uh, did drink poison in the name of 
protecting the planet. So there were a few sincere people out there. They're no longer with us. But uh, the, the very scary part of the environmental movement has always been anti-human population. So this isn't anything new. It's been around for a long time. Uh, you might remember Kathleen Hartnett White came on the show. She wrote this new book I told you about, Fossil Fuels, Exposing the Mad War on Energy. And she says, she's talking about Paul Ehrlich's population bomb, the guy who really made this theory very, very famous in the United States. You know, basically, he predicted that population would spiral out of control and the environment would be destroyed and, then, you know, thereby it would be total chaos and destruction. She says, quote, not one of Ehrlich's many predictions ever came true. Food supply per person has dramatically increased, not decreased, the way that he predicted, while the rate of population growth has substantially declined in those developing countries most contributing to the rapid increase since 1950, unquote. So, like so many other people who are pompous enough to think they can predict the future, Ehrlich did not foresee advances in agriculture that would help us to feed, you know, billions more people than in the past. He, he assumes a static world where human beings stop innovating. And at the same time, he does not assume that uh, population would go down. In fact, what has happened is people have controlled their reproductive selves, um, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in, in ways I would not approve of. But in any event, the fact is population has gone down. Certainly the rate of growth has gone down throughout at least the advanced countries in Western world, and, and, and increasingly so throughout even the third world. Well, you knew it was bound to happen. We now have a brand new development. That's, all that stuff is old. There's nothing new about that. That's old news. All these predictions and doomsday predictions never come true. Humankind innovates its way out. Well, now, despite all of that success, we have a guy named Dr. Reeder at Johns Hopkins University he has a new study all about how we have to reduce global fertility by, a, by half a child per woman. And that would have a substantial impact, impact excuse me, on global warming. He, he talked about this on NPR. And guess what? You knew it was coming. He wants to impose a carbon tax onto dependents. A carbon tax. So, and he says eliminate tax credits for families. Forget about that. He says, we don't want to incentivize people to have kids for crying out loud. We need to do away with these tax credits and instead put a carbon tax onto everyone who dares create another mouth to feed, another mouth that exhales carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Does that shock you? Did you think it wouldn't go this way? This guy thinks he's probably, you know, the greatest policy innovator you know, he's probably expecting a Nobel Prize next year for arguing that, you know, this beautiful experience of welcoming a new life into the earth, these beautiful billboards you see on the side of the interstate, we have them all over North Texas, you know, where the hospitals are competing for your business, where you got a mama holding her brand new newborn. More babies are welcomed every day at the so-and-so hospital of Dallas than anywhere else in North Texas. These beautiful, beautiful moments. Well, Dr. Reeder wants to, you know, attach a, some subscript right there on the billboard, you know, and pay the IRS lady, you know, another breathing mouth, more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, you're paying for it. So 
that's what's coming next. I saw this and I'm like, you know what? Wait for it. I expect this to be debated at the next UN conference. Why not? What's stopping them? A carbon tax for having a baby. That's what's coming up next. So, don't say I didn't tell you. You know, and, and all of this in spite of the fact that according to the World Bank, again, world population growth has dropped precipitously over the past 50 years from a rate of 2.1% to 1.18% last year. And the U.S. rate of growth is down to 0.8%. It's a little concerning. And the Energy Information Agency says that U.S. energy-related carbon dioxide emissions in 2015 are 12% below their 2005 levels. So despite all that progress, that doesn't stop them from these radical, radical proposals. I am opposed. I don't know about you. I don't like Dr. Reeder's ideas. I don't remember asking him anything. You know, I just want to keep you informed. Look out for it. Spread the word. There is no end to the plans. Show. Join us on Twitter at Jackie Daily Show and on demand iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music now. I've told you about the lack of transparency in these solar deals that have been happening. If you didn't see me quoted in the Carolina Journal, uh, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, uh, they called me to ask about the fact that s- certain places, you know, whether uh, it's the state of North Carolina or elsewhere, are refusing to tell us, the taxpayer, who is making money on these solar deals. These are deals that are backed by you and me, backed by the taxpayer. It's our money. We subsidize this business. We have every right to know where that money is going, who it's going to, and for what purpose. You know, it's in the private sector, maybe it's no one's business, but when it's our money, it is our business. And, you know, especially after Solyndra, You'd think they learned their, their lesson. And they're claiming some sort of privacy issue with the IRS. Well, no, that information is disclosed often at the federal level and, and different places. It, it's, you know, government contracting should be wide open. It's subject to FOIA requests, investigations. That's Freedom of Information Act requests. So, uh, you know, that's, that's one issue. There's no national security justification for not giving us this information. Someone needs to file a lawsuit and sue. That might be a good one for Rob Hineke, who was just on with us uh, from the, the uh, Center for the American Future. Well, now on Capitol Hill, you have two U.S. senators. That's Lisa Murkowski from the energy state of Alaska and Jeff Flake from Arizona, who is a budget hawk, known as the budget hawk of the Senate, very conservative on spending. They are writing to the Treasury Department about companies, solar companies that are under investigation now because they included ineligible items as costs for reimbursement under the terms of their federally backed loans, or they overstated the value 
of their solar energy investments, claiming approximately $1.3 billion, quote, in unwarranted cash grants, amounting to more than two and a half times the amount of the Solyndra default. Okay, lots of money. I actually had no idea how extensive this investigation was. I had no idea. Or the size of the money that's moved. Remember, the Obama administration gave Solyndra greater than $535 million in federal loan guarantees. And that company declared bankruptcy in September 2011. But there are so many others. All right. In 2012... Abound Solar, Abound Solar, declared bankruptcy after receiving 400 or greater than $400 million in federal loan guarantees. And apparently, Abound Solar had knowingly sold underperforming solar panels for years. And when it closed its doors, it left behind piles of toxic, defective solar panels that were later covered in concrete and buried. This, according to the reporting, this is the account of Kenneth Arts and H. Sterling Burnett, Ph.D., writing from the Heartland uh, Institute. This is the uh, Environment and Climate News. So these are their representations and their research. Uh, secondarily, after Abound, you have Spanish green energy giant Abengoa, which has received more than $2 billion, that's billion with a B, in federal and state taxpayers' support. This is a Spanish company, Spanish as in Spain. They've now, after receiving all of our money, they've now filed for bankruptcy protection inside the U.S. back in March. In April of this year, Sun Edison, the big one, Sun Edison, one of the most government-subsidized companies in the United States, and the self-proclaimed, quote, largest green energy company, unquote, has filed for bankruptcy. The SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Department of Justice are investigating its financial dealings. Does this concern anybody? Does this concern anyone? Do you see how Solyndra happened and no one learned anything? No lesson was learned. No one was punished. Nothing changed they just kept doing the same thing over and over, and now you're hearing that this same thing is happening in the housing market, that big housing bubble we had before, the ninja loans they handed out. Ninja, no, no income, no job, no assets. They're doing it again, apparently. The government never learns its lesson. Even tragic catastrophes, even embarrassing catastrophes that we actually hear about, and let me tell you, most of them we'll never hear about and never know about. There's so much of this going on. So not only are these companies, these solar companies, massive failures, and they're all going into bankruptcy, they're being investigated for malfeasance by the SEC and the DOJ. Even Sun Edison, I didn't know this. So, I mean, that's a name that you, you probably would quickly recognize. Okay, so these two senators, Lisa Murkowski and Jeff Flake, have written to the Treasury Department. The Treasury had promised the Congress it would publish its findings of its investigations with these solar companies by June of this year, but it failed to do so. You know, it, this, is, this is normal. Congress is ignored all the time. Back in November, they asked for an update. I remember this when I worked for Congress. We would send off letters to the Department of Justice because we're supposed to oversee them in the FBI, in the committee where... Uh, I was helping staff, and 
It was like a black hole. You send these letters. These agencies feel free to ignore the Congress. The checks and balances are not working, and they're not going to work until Congress gets serious and cuts the budget of these agencies. That is the weapon that Congress has, and they never, ever, 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 ever use it. I mean, maybe they've used it, you know, years ago, maybe a handful of times, but not not that I saw. The, the tens of thousands of opportunities in appropriations bills that they had, all these provisions to cut, I don't recall that going on. So, oh, moving on. Part did I miss Solar City? Heaven forbid it. Okay, Solar City apparently received greater than five hundred million. Isn't this Elon Musk's company? More than five hundred million in cash grants. Well, apparently they're being investigated or was being investigated by the Treasury Department and the DOJ for quote possible misrepresentations concerning the fair market value of the solar energy system submitted by the company in U.S. Treasury grant applications, unquote. Again, coming from the Energy and Climate News issue July 2016, that is Solar City. It just goes on and on. Billions of taxpayer dollars are at stake. They've taken the money and run. People deserve to know what's happening, says Dan Kish. Mr. Kish was on the show. Great guy. Smart guy. He says Treasury and DOJ needs to come clean with the Senate and the taxpayers. That's David Williams, Taxpayers Protection Alliance. Why should they be able to operate in secrecy with so little oversight? So this is what's happening. Government should not be picking winners and losers. This is an abomination. These are exhibits A, B, C, D, subpart section one, subpart A. I mean, everything you need to demonstrate why you don't trust the government to run an economy or even a little sector of the economy, and especially not where energy is concerned. And they want us to trust them to replace oil, gas, and coal? Don't make me laugh. Don't make me laugh. It doesn't pass the laugh test. Even by 2020, their product is projected to be less than 3% of the U.S. energy sector. That is the electricity feed. Okay. After all of this money, you know, does coal have its handout asking us for billions of dollars so it can be 3% of the energy feed at an inflated rate? and then be under investigation by federal agencies. That's kind of hard to do, right? They let everything slide past them. But even they're on it. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. All right, we've run out of time. Loved being with you. Please, you can join me online and continue this conversation throughout the week on Twitter at Jackie Daly Show, on Facebook, and on demand anytime you'd like to hear my voice. iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. See you next week.